looking at this whole concept of the will of God. And a few weeks ago, we started looking at just a few points uh, about the will of God. And, and there's a real uh, desire for people to know the will of God. I did, did some research, and it doesn't matter what sort of age you go through, one of the biggest topics of books that are being produced out in Christian bookstores is the will of God from way back to now because everybody is interested in what is the will of God and how do we find the will of God? What does it look like? What can we expect? And we get all this sort of stuff. So there's this real desire for us to know the will of God. The overriding reason is because we all what? We, we love God. We love God. We want to know that our lives are pleasing to him. We want to know that he is happy with the choices that we're making, that he's pleased with the way we're living our life down here on planet Earth. But there are also a lot of misconceptions about the will of God. And we've been just plugging away through probably what I think are three of the big misconceptions about the will of God. In other words, if when we find the will of God or when we're in the will of God, these things should happen or should not happen. First week, we looked at uh, responsibility. And uh, somewhere along the line, we kind of feel like we can use the will of God or God said to eliminate personal responsibility. We blame God. I've, I used a few stories a couple of weeks ago. I won't spend a lot of time going back there now, but go back three weeks ago on the iTunes podcast. You can have a listen to that. The will of God, just because I come up and say, well, God told me to, doesn't eliminate personal responsibility. I still make a choice to walk in that direction. I do certain things because I believe that God's leading me to do it. I could be right, I could be wrong. Sometimes I get to a point where I go, look back 100%, I know I was right. Other times it might not be till I get to heaven before I look back and go, no, that was, that was right, that was God, that wasn't so on. But we still pursue the will of God. But the will of God does not eliminate personal responsibility out of my life. I can't blame God if I step out and do something that I feel like he's saying and there's a certain consequence or whatever. I can't blame God. I still have to take personal responsibility for my life. Uh, the second one that we looked at last week, if you've got the slide there, Eliminates potential danger. If we find the will of God, then that place is going to be immune from risk. That place is going to be immune from uh, potential danger and risk. Uh, it's not true. All you've got to do is read the New Testament and look at a bunch of men and women and a whole community of Christian people who are smack banging the will of God, who are being dragged off and fed to lions and, and uh, thrown in prison for their faith. You've only got to look at church history and the history of missions to see that people who are in the will of God quite often found themselves in dangerous situations and risky situations. So praying and praying, waiting till I know that this next step is the will of God, please don't kid yourself and think, once I know it's God and I step into it, there'll be no risk involved and there'll be no danger in the process. That's a complete fallacy. The will of God, nowhere in the Bible does it teach us that if we're walking in his will, that we won't have to take personal responsibility for our lives, that if we're walking in his will, that there won't be any danger or any risks that we need to take. As a matter of fact, faith equals risk. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And most big decisions that I've had to make in my life where I felt God has led me in a certain direction have taken an element of risk. Uh, anyone watch, see the old Indiana Jones films? Anyone ever? I'm a fan of Indiana Jones movies. I love uh, Harrison Ford. He's a great actor. Um, but in, in Indiana Jones, I think it's the third one. The, um, is that the third one where they go looking for the cup? Or is that the first one? First one, there you go. And there's a scene where he gets... Yep, see where he gets... Oh, we started a marital conflict here. That's not what church is about. Okay, let's not... We just saw the temple of when he was much younger. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. And so there's a scene right at the end where he's followed all these clues and he's got to the edge of this cliff and about from me to Luke is another cliff but in between that is this massive chasm. Remember that scene? And he's standing there and he's running through the clues in his brain and something connects and so he picks up some sand and he throws it into midair. 
And sand all out here falls down to this bottomless chasm, but the sand in the middle stops. So there's this invisible bridge there. But before he does that, though, he stands there in midair on the edge. He puts a foot out like this, his hands out, and just drops. And he falls about a foot and then, bang, his feet land on this invisible thing. That's when he grabs the sand, he goes, bang, there's a bridge there. But he took that step first, and I think that's faith. I think that's the will of God. If you want to put it, paint a picture like this, it was the will of God that he got to the other side, but he had to take that step of faith. So there's always a step of faith and an element of risk involved every time we step out in God. How many of you know that when you got married, you took a step of faith? There was no guarantees. Yeah, risk on you. <laughs> you better believe it. I wake up every day by faith. So... The will of God does not eliminate faith. This week, I want to talk about the last one, then we're going to move on to some other things in coming weeks maybe. But um, the third point I want to say is that we think that when we enter into the will of God, if we find the will of God, it will give us total satisfaction this side of heaven. It eliminates possible frustration. That if I can hear God say, this is my will, walk in it, that it will give me absolute and total satisfaction this side of heaven. Let me tell you something. I believe that's a myth. I believe it's a myth. And it needs to be debunked because it creates uh, wrong concepts of the will of God. We can be smack bang in the middle of the will of God. We can have something that causes a little bit of frustration and people suddenly turn back, go, I must be out of the will of God because there's a bit of frustration here or because I don't feel fully satisfied with my life. The myth of satisfaction is just that. It's a myth. One of my favourite movies of all time, is a movie called City Slickers. Anyone remember City Slickers with Billy Crystal, Daniel Stern? I love it. It is a great, great film. And there's a scene in there where Billy Crystal and his mates, they're, city, they're from the city, and in order to have some space time to re-evaluate their lives, what they do is they go out to a ranch and they, they herd some cattle for a, for a couple of weeks. And they end up with this guy called Curly, who's a bit of a real rough nut, leathery skin, your typical sort of... You know, cowboy guy. But there's a scene where Billy Crystal, with his, with his, he's, he's done the best he can with a sort of shirt with a collar and looks like a bit of a cowboy in jeans and that, but he's got his baseball cap on. You can tell he's from the city. And there's a scene where uh, there's a cow that needs to give birth. Anyone remember the scene? And so Billy Crystal gets told by Curly, you're going to have to stick your arm where the cow comes out from and reach around inside and try to find the calf, otherwise the mother and calf are both going to die. So Billy Crystal bends down and the arm disappears. And he's going around like this and you can imagine the smells and everything. He's reaching around and he's very upset about this situation. Then he, all of a sudden he stops and he looks at Curly and he goes, this was not in the brochure. And I think sometimes, as Christians, we can feel a little bit that way when we have wrong concepts of the will of God. You know, it's his way of saying I didn't sign up for this. When I came out here on this country ride, nobody told me there's nothing in the brochure to say that I was going to get my arm halfway on the inside of a cow. There's nothing to say I was going to be doing this stuff. There's nothing to say it was going to be this hard or this dirty or that I'd have to involve myself in this kind of stuff. You know, here's the thing. We think that if God says marry that person, then you'll have a totally satisfying marriage devoid of the normal frustrations of life. (laughs) Maybe for some, Rob. I mean, I was one of the lucky ones, you know, but the rest of you out there, you probably every now and then, as you've gone through your marriage, you've probably rubbed each other the wrong way and you probably had frustrations with one another, things that you've had to work through and deal with. But people have this concept that if it's the will of God, it'll just perfect. We don't have to work at it. There'll be no frustrations. People think if God says go to that university, then we're guaranteed success because God said to go. No, you're still going to have to study. 
You're still going to have to say no to certain things so you can head down in your books and do, do the best you can. You're still going to have to ask your lecturers questions when you don't understand things. There are still things you're going to have to do. Just because God said go there is no guarantee that it's just going to be successful and work. If God says buy that house, then we'll always have great neighbours and the house's value will increase by the time we sell it. Well, there's no guarantee of that. Go and buy a house. God could tell you to buy the house. Don't do any work on it for 10 years. See if the value increases, you know? You can't control your neighbours who moves in and out of a neighbourhood or what the council might do in that area. There's no guarantees that go with that. If God says go to that church, then every spiritual and social need I have will be met. Or at least I'll be able to do whatever I want to there. They'll recognise the brilliance that I am and before you know it, I'll be basically running the place. Okay? Just because God calls you to go to a church. How many people church hop because, well, I'm not satisfied with that church? And so they jump to another church. I'm, I'm, look, I'm... I'm I'm neither here nor there. People want to move churches and go around, do whatever it is that you want to do. But I just know that it's not until you entrench yourself in a community, get to know people, start doing life together, that things actually start to happen. People who jump around trying to find the perfect church, guess what? It doesn't exist. If you find the perfect church, let me give you a piece of advice, flee it because you will ruin that thing. You will mess it up. If you find the perfect church, please, I'm begging you, don't go because you'll wreck it. Okay, why? Because none of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. Coming along to church, just because God says to go to a church, doesn't eliminate frustration. Sometimes I am frustrated. Sometimes you're probably frustrated with me. I get on iTunes sometimes and I listen to my messages. Now, you've got to understand, my background is teaching in Youth with the Mission schools, where I go to a school on a topic and I can have 15 to 18 hours they give me to, to fill in the space of four days. So I've got... This is what I'm, and I come here all of a sudden and I know after about 18 minutes you guys are going what do you say? <laughs> you know? You think that's not frustrating for me? And I go home and go geez, people if they were more spiritual they'd stay alert and they'd listen to me and they'd know the wisdom coming up then I go home I'll put on iTunes after about 18 minutes I'm going what? Listening to myself so I get it I get it. But just because God said be somewhere, do something, have something, doesn't mean that it eliminates frustration just because it is the will of God. Now let me show you something. I went through the dictionary to find out what our modern day understanding of the word satisfaction is. And I found this. The Cambridge Dictionary defines satisfaction this way. A pleasant feeling. Now I want you to, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. A pleasant feeling that you get when you receive something you wanted, or when you have done something you wanted to do. What do you reckon satisfaction's all about? Satisfaction in today's day and age is all about me. It's all about how I feel. It's all about me doing what I want to do because I want to do it, when I want to do it. And that's what satisfaction is about in the world in which we live. We live in a world that is driven by instant satisfaction, isn't it? I mean, we don't even want to wait five minutes for, for a, a, you know, a, a pot of water to boil to make a tea and a billy anymore. We just want to flick a switch. You know why we flick a switch on the coffee? How many of you flick the switch and stand there for the two minutes it takes to boil? Of course you don't. You flick that switch and you move on to the next thing. We do the next thing because, you know, that thing saves me time to do this. And all of a sudden this thing here means I can do well. We want everything instantly. We don't want to put a pie in an oven. Ovens are great things. Who remembers? Any of you alive when ovens first came out? 
Just checking, just checking, just wanted to know, just gauging, getting a bit of a feel for the, feel for the land here. When, I don't even know when the oven was first invented, but what a great invention. I mean, can you imagine not having ovens and building fires and everything? And then all of a sudden someone says, hey, I've got this idea, here's this thing, open the door, stuff it in, turn a knob, put on the gas, poof! Walk away, do what you want for now, come back, the chicken's cooked. What a fantastic invention. But it wasn't enough. It's too slow. So now we've got microwave ovens. We just put them in, press a button. What used to take you an hour, now you press a button, three and a half minutes, it's cooked. We just want everything instantly. We want to be satisfied really, really quickly. And you know what? It's not necessarily bad, but let's be real. It's the world we live in right now. It's the world that we engage in. It's the world that we're raising our children in right now. See, I sometimes get frustrated because I think, you know, young people be a bit more patient. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, they weren't brought up in a world where they needed to be. Their world base, their world view is so different. The world has changed so rapidly from the time that I was, say, 20 years of age to now 45, the world has changed so much in those 25 years, probably more than it did in the previous 100. With the advent of... And so, satisfaction. Everyone wants to be satisfied. Everything's got to happen nice and quick and so on, and we want instant satisfaction. Did you know, I found these stats out, around 450 billion dollars per year is spent on global marketing and advertising. 450. You know, when you sit down, you watch TV and you see them ads every seven and a half, eight minutes, whatever the ads come on. Because that's the attention span is getting less and less, so we get more and more ads, you see. That's why they do it. 450 billion dollars worldwide is spent per year on advertising and marketing. And you know what most of it's designed to do? Most of it's designed to do four things. One, make you unhappy with who you are. Number two, make you unhappy with what you have. Number three, make you unhappy with how you look. And number four, make you unhappy with what you're doing. That's what most marketing is all about. Most marketing is designed to make you feel unhappy about your current status so that you'll be driven to whatever it is that they're trying to give you. And an Israeli commentator on marketing, I read this quote this week, and he said this, he said, because producers covet consumers' money, They need to get consumers to covet their goods. Social historians note a change in American advertising after World War I. From, now catch this, from conveying product information to manufacturing desire. That's important. Marketing went from just giving you the information about a particular product to now the aim is not just to inform you about the product but to get you to a place where you desire that product. When you go home this week and you watch the ads... Ask yourself the question, note, how much of this ad is just giving me information, how much of it is trying to get me to want the latest flat-screen TV or the new car or the whatever? Marketing has changed. The public, the public business people feared was too frugal. To rev up the economy, products were associated with images, glamour and personal identity. Now listen to this bit. Marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating them. So once upon a time, marketing was about there's a need here. We want to give you information about a product that might meet the need that you have. Now marketing has changed. We're now creating a need and then trying to go, you need this. You have to have this. You might already have a car, but you know what, Rob? Your car's not good enough. You need the latest Ford Territory, you know, with the, the, the bells and whistles and a blue curtain that comes. You need it. No, you don't think so. Now go home and watch TV. You need it. Okay? 30 years later, the post-World War II boom gave us planned obsolescence whose most recent incarnation is the need for continual upgrading of our electronic gadgets. Who can relate to that? 
Phone plans, two years and a phone plan's over. And what do they do? They'll probably call you in 18 months ago, you need a new phone. Really? I need a new phone? My phone's actually working fine. You know? I mean, they're smart now. What they do is make phones that only last a year and a half so that you literally do need a new phone. So they've cottoned on, 13 months, there you go. From experience, I'd imagine. So, they, so, so marketing are creating this world where we feel like we need more and more things to bring satisfaction into our world. And if we don't have certain things we're told, really, what they're saying is you shouldn't be satisfied with your life. It's very frightening. It's very, very frightening, especially when I look at things such as the suicide rate and so on around the world. And I think there are a lot of factors about that, but I think one of the factors too, I think this must contribute to it, this constant need that you're not satisfied with what you've got, you're not satisfied with who you are, you're not satisfied with, with what you're doing, you're not satisfied with what you're... You, sh- you can't be satisfied. How can you be satisfied with all that stuff? It's a world in which we live in, which is like a whirlwind. But you know what? As Christians, we need to be aware. We need to be aware of the world in which we live. Dissatisfaction is the motivation behind all kinds of destructive behaviours. People cheat on their spouses because of dissatisfaction. I think that I'll get more satisfaction over here with this other person, whether it be physical satisfaction, whatever. And so it leads to destructive behaviours. People chase illicit substances and drugs and things like that. Yes, a part of it is escapism, but, but the, the escapism is that whatever my natural world is, I'm not satisfied in that world. So maybe over here, if I can eliminate that pain, I'll be more satisfied. People chase likes on social media. If I can get lots of likes and people looking at my pictures and commenting and so on, yeah, it's an addiction. It's an addiction. People go deeper into debt to have that thing. You know what? When you leave here, I can give, hook you up with a bank manager who can give you a good loan. You get that Ford Territory. You deserve it. You deserve that Ford Territory, right? You know? You've got to get the bigger thing, the, the latest, the fastest. So go into debt for it. It doesn't matter. But don't worry about the debt because once you've got the thing, you'll be satisfied <coughs> until the first bill comes in there. People chase fast money through gambling and so on because if we get more money, I'll be more satisfied. It'll make a difference to my life. People change who they are to fit into a group. I'll compromise the very presence, the very essence of who I am in order to fit into this group because being over here with these people, I'm just not as satisfied. Those guys are the cool guys. So I'll do whatever it takes to compromise who I am so I can fit into this group because that will bring me satisfaction. Christians chase the elusive will of God because we think it will provide a sense of satisfaction that we're craving for. Just because God said, and it's the will of God, then I'll get all the satisfaction that I need. I don't quite know that that's the case. Why? I'm just not convinced that satisfaction comes from without. Just not convinced that the Bible teaches that my God said, my goal is to give you ultimate satisfaction here on earth. I'm just not sure that's what Scripture says. What happens is we chase these things, but we all end up singing from the same songbook. Anyone know the song from Keith Richards and Mick Jagger? I can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try. <laughs> yeah, that song was written in response to what they observed when they went to America on a tour. They were, that was the song that set them up, the Rolling Stones, to be the band they are today. I was reading a, an article with uh, Mick Jagger, and he said, you know, we went to the States, and we saw the rampant consumerism in America. And he said, I noticed all these things that you have to have, all these things that were available, yet people were still unhappy. That was the motivation behind that song. Can't get no satisfaction, but I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. And we live in a world where people emulate that daily. We're trying to, we wake up in the morning hoping that we'll find something that will satisfy that longing, something that'll make our lives feel worth, worthwhile or us feel useful as a person or whatever. And we're looking externally for the next thing that we think will bring that satisfaction to us. And we get in that place, and guess what? It doesn't do it. We still don't feel completely satisfied. See, satisfaction, the search for satisfaction is a journey taking you to a destination that doesn't exist. 
but we keep chasing it. But it doesn't exist. Is there a better way? I think there is a much better way. Before I get to that, let me just point you to a couple of things that Jesus said. In John 10.10, Jesus said this. He said, The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Now watch this. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So Jesus said that the thief comes to kill, but he said that he made the statement, it's true, we can't avoid it. He said, I've come to give you a rich and satisfying life. Jesus also, in John 16.33, said this. He said, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, here on earth, where's this going to happen? Here on earth. So does that mean that there's another point by which he references life? Is there another part to life and he's making a distinction? What would be the other part to life, you think, that Jesus is referencing here? Could it be eternity? Could it be the other side of the veil when we stand in his presence, when we break off the shackles of this human body? He makes a specific comment. I've told you all this so you may have peace in me here on earth. In other words, in this portion of your existence. Death is not the end of our existence as believers. This is just a part of our existence. This is just a part of our journey. Our journey goes on. Our journey goes on. The Bible teaches that. This part of our existence is the drop in the bucket. The other side is the ocean. This is just the drop in the bucket. This is the world in which we are consciously aware of the most right now. Why? Because we interact with it all the time. But it's not the only world. Outside the doors of this room are people chasing satisfaction in every way they can. You know why? Because they think that the ultimate satisfaction, it's here, it's somewhere here. And if we just look hard enough and run around enough, we'll find that thing, we'll find where that place is. Jesus says this, he's a, and you know, this is a promise I've never found in a promise book, but it's a promise nonetheless. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So here's Jesus in John 10 saying, I'm going to give you a satisfying life. And then in John 16, he's saying, you're going to have trials and you're going to have sorrows in this life. Now, if I put those two things together, here's a thought. Therefore, it must be true that we can have a satisfying life in the midst of and not devoid of trials and sorrows. Is that a fair assumption? We can have a satisfying life in the midst of and not devoid of trials and sorrows. So we can have frustrations in our world. Jesus said you're going to, trials and sorrows, that equates to frustration for me. Jesus said you're going to have this stuff, but it's still possible for you to live a satisfying life here on earth. Here's what I want to say. God never promised to give us total satisfaction this side of heaven. But he empowers us to choose contentment. Okay? God never promised to give us total satisfaction this side of heaven. But he does empower us to choose contentment. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, if you want to flash that up there for me. Look, we all know this verse. We read it billions of times. It's a very common one. Philippians 4, verse 11, 13 says this. It says, this is Paul speaking. He says, not that I was ever in need. Was Paul ever in need? When you're in prison and people have got to bring stuff to you, do you think he was? I think he was. But from his what? Perspective, he was fine. 
He says, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content. That word content in the Greek can be translated literally this way, independent of external circumstances. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learnt the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that my, my, my contentment on earth has nothing to do with externals. Or in other words, my satisfaction, me being satisfied with the place I'm at right now, has nothing to do with externals. I could be in prison, shackled to a wall with nothing to eat. But yet I can be content and I can be satisfied. Why? Because I can do everything through Christ who's with me. It's like Jesus said in John 16. He said, you're going to face trials. But he said, but you know what? It's okay. I've overcome the world. In other words, I'm with you. I'm with you. You're going through trials, it's okay, you're going to face them, but guess what, you don't face them alone, I'm with you. Be content in that. No matter what you're facing, I'm with you. And that's what Paul is saying. I've had lots and lots, and I've had little and little. I've had, had times where I felt probably completely satisfied, other times where externally my life looked like it was going to the pack. People would probably question, and they did. You go to the book of Acts, and when he's travelling to Rome, he knew inside of his heart that he had to go to Rome. And there's one point there where the brothers tried to stop him. They said, no, you can't go there. Why? Because it has been revealed to us through a prophet that you're going to go through many tribulations, and you're going to be enchained and imprisoned. And Paul said, so what? I know this is the right thing to do. I'm not looking at externals to make the decision, you know, if, if it's the will of God, everything will look perfect on the outside. No, it won't. It's a fallacy. It's that Paul kept on marching, he gets imprisoned, and he writes some of these letters while he's in prison. He says, I know, I know what it's like to have a lot, have little. I know what it's like for the rest of the world out there. You're looking going, oh, I'm satisfied based on what I have, dissatisfied based on what I don't, and so on. My satisfaction level goes up and down. Paul says, that's irrelevant. My satisfaction doesn't come from out there because God never promised to make me satisfied by external things. He told me to choose to be contented on the inside with what I've got. There's no promise of God that this side of heaven you'll be totally satisfied with life. But he does empower you through the gift of the Holy Spirit to choose to be contented where you are right now. Contentment is a choice. It's a matter of perspective. It's how we look at things. Paul's in prison. Some people go, well, you're in prison. That must be really bad. Paul says, not really, because God's with me. Jesus is right here in this prison cell with me. He hasn't left me nor forsaken me. So I guess from one perspective, yeah, I'm chained to a wall in a prison. Hey, let me give you another perspective. I'm chained to a wall in a prison with Jesus. It's perspective. God never promised to give you a totally satisfying existence here on earth, not in the way that the world tells us satisfaction is. And we need to be careful because I look around at the church world today and a lot of people are chasing the same kind of satisfaction that the world offers. We think if we just had this next thing or that next thing or bigger or better or faster or more, we'll be satisfied. Paul says, no, you can be contented no matter where you are. When you get a hold of this secret, Christ is with you. And you make a choice to look at every situation of life and go, you know what, I don't, I don't need to chase the Joneses. I don't need to have more of this, more of that. I have Christ in me. The hope of glory dwells in me. I've got God on my side. Now, when I focus on that, guess what? This drop in the bucket's going to be over soon. And then I'm going to hit the ocean at God's presence. The waves are going to start coming in and I'm going to be caught up in that. This life is temporary. What we're meant to focus on is eternal. 
It's natural that we think about this temporal world. It's natural that we think that way because that's the way we're wired and this is the world we interact with. But as believers with the Spirit on the inside of us, I believe the Holy Spirit's trying to call us to a higher way of living, a higher place, beyond just this natural world, beyond just satisfaction with what we can get, what we can gain, and so on. God wants us to move beyond that. Some soldiers asked John the Baptist how they should live in the light of God's forgiveness. In Luke chapter 3, verse 14, here's what Jesus says. In light of the forgiveness of God, in light of the presence of God, the goodness of the Father, here's, what, here's how you should live. They said, what should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. You know, it was commonplace for soldiers to extort money and take more off. That's what they did. They just ripped people off. And Jesus says, you know what? In light of what God has done for you and in light of eternity, why don't you just be content with what you got? Because you know what? One day it's going to be over and you'll be in the presence of God and you'll lack for nothing. You'll lack for nothing. Why compromise that by down here extorting your still? Why do that? Don't do it. Simple advice, but really, really valid advice. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I'll never fail you. I'll never abandon you. There it is again. God's saying, be satisfied with what you have. How can I be satisfied with what I have? Because you have God. You have the very presence of God with you. When you start focusing on that, the material things mean nothing. They pale into insignificance. Chase, well, it's like Solomon said, it's like a chasing after the wind. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes, I chased wisdom and I chased material possessions and I had buildings and vineyards and businesses and I chased everything. And in the end, I came to one conclusion. Fear God and obey his commandments. Everything else is a chasing after the wind. It's a search for satisfaction and there's no destination. You never get there because the bar keeps on moving. And we're not called to that. As believers, we're called to something higher than that. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. This is, not, this is not to say don't try hard in life. This is not to say don't have goals. This is not to say don't work better. This is not to say if you've got an opportunity to earn more money, don't take it. What it's saying is don't think that that next step will give you significance in life. Don't think that next step will give you the final piece of satisfaction that you lie awake at night going, look, I, I'm a, I've given my life to Christ, but I still feel like there's more. Don't lie awake thinking if I just had, if I just had, if I just had. It's, it's not adopting a case sera sera attitude to life. Whatever it will be, will be. I'm not advocating that. As believers, we should be the hardest workers. We should be the best bosses. We should be the greatest employees. Yeah? We should be the most integrous human beings. We should be the most generous. We should be the most of all these character traits that symbolize a, a, a person of God. All these character traits that symbolize the kingdom of God. We should be the best at them. We should be striving to be really expressive in those facets. So this is not saying it doesn't matter. If you can build your business and get more money, let me tell you, go for it. If you can be, you know, create more wealth, go for it. If you need a bigger car and you can get it, go for it. But don't think that those things will give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. Don't look to them to fill something that God himself says, I'm here to fill. I'm here to fill. When we get God in that place, like Paul said, it doesn't matter whether you've got the, the, the fanciest ute or the cheapest $100 ute. Because you just go, I don't get from A to B, I don't really care. You don't care if you've got the biggest house. 
You don't care if this is perfect or that. Because you've got God with you. And through Christ, through that presence of God, we can do all things. In fact, as believers, we will never be truly satisfied this side of heaven. This is my belief. Because our eyes have been opened up to something that shows us there's so much more to life. Amen? When I think about the cross, when I think about who Jesus is, how can I be satisfied with what this earth has to offer? Really, have a think about it. One day you're going to leave this body. Your spirit's going to shoot on up into eternity and you're going to stand before this great light. And you're going to shield yourself from it. It's going to be so intense and so bright. And maybe somebody will lead you up. And as you get a bit closer, maybe you'll see this figure, this form, and it'll be the Son of Man, the Son of God. When you think about that, where's the significance in a new car? A house, bigger paycheck. You see, this is how we as believers are called to live. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, speaking of some of the great heroes of the faith, and here's what it says. It says, All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. Watch this. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. Don't go back in your search for satisfaction. Don't go back to the things that, I'm a believer now, I'm going to heaven, so now I can go back to that way of thinking, go back to that way of living. Don't do it. Keep going forward. If they longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Isn't that exciting? They put up with all the stuff. They didn't get all the promises that, that, that they, you know, because they were looking at something down the track. They said, you know what, the promise is great, but it doesn't really matter if we don't get it here because there's something even better than the earthly promise that was made to us, and that is this heavenly homeland that we're heading towards. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We've been called out of the world system as believers. The search for satisfaction is a never-ending journey with no clearly defined destination. However, the highway to contentment has its destination clearly defined. As the writer of Hebrews says, we're looking for a better place. We're aiming for a heavenly homeland. I'll finish with this. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. The world in which we live, this whole concept of satisfaction, it's a war that wages against our soul. And the writer here says, keep away from worldly desires because we are temporary residents and we're foreigners here. Enjoy life on planet Earth. Make the most of it. Do everything you feel like, you know, you, the goals, the bucket list, all that stuff. Be the best. Earn some money. Buy a house of calm. Not anti any of that. What I'm saying is this. We need to fix our eyes on something beyond this earth. Satisfaction here is not guaranteed of God. There's no guaranteed satisfaction if you're looking for satisfaction the way the world does. If you're choosing contentment by having the presence of God in your life, guess what? It opens the door for spiritual satisfaction and we can live a satisfied life here on earth. But don't expect heaven to be here on earth. God says we're here on earth for a time and we're going to experience certain things because it's just the lay of the land. But one day we have a hope. It's greater than all of that, amen?
Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, I, I particularly want to thank you for this encouragement, God, that, that, Lord, this life is temporal, that what we have here will come and go, that we can't take anything with us. But we thank you for it, God. We thank you for the, the blessings of work and, and the prosperity that you give to us. And God, I pray for each person here that we would prosper, God, physically, uh, emotionally, financially, God. I also pray we'd prosper relationally, God. We'd prosper mentally, socially. We'd prosper in all these areas, God. But Lord, let us do it with one eye here and another eye to eternity because one day we're going to go and we're going to stand before you. Lord, let us uh, check our own hearts. See what we're looking to for satisfaction. God, let us examine our own hearts and see if we're in that place where we can choose contentment. It might not be perfect right now, but you know, one day it will be. We might not have everything we want right now, but one day we will have everything we want if our number one desire is your presence and your face. God, I pray this week, just bless us as we go into the week. And Father, I pray that you would give each of us here the opportunity at some point to tell someone about Jesus who doesn't know who you are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Uh, have a fantastic week. I'll connect with you guys real quick if I can and we'll look at some dates and stuff. Thank you to those that came and told me about Saturday. I'll be in touch with you about Saturday. And uh, have a great week in your connect groups. Have a great week at work. Great week with your family. Safe trip home.